This is the biggest podcast I've ever done in my career. Welcome back to the Byron Lazine podcast. I had the pleasure and honor of interviewing Spencer Raskoff, the former CEO of Zillow of 14 years. He invited us into his home. We went deep on his 14 years at Zillow. I asked him the question that is on everybody's mind. Spencer, would you, if you were the current CEO of Zillow, start to buy independent brokerages across the country? We know Zillow is already licensed in every single state. So is that the next move? Spencer reveals that secret and much more on his 14 years there. We talk about Picasso. We talk about what every real estate entrepreneur should be thinking about. Spencer, of course, is the biggest angel investor in the space. He solved big problems in our industry. Another company solving big issues in real estate today is Sisu, S-I-S-U. Sisu increases annual volume for teams in independent brokerages by 107% and individual agent volume by 28%. They are streamlining the transaction side of the business. We use Sisu at my team in Connecticut, which will do over a thousand transactions this year. The leaderboards and everything that you might have thought Sisu is known for are fantastic, but it's really about automating that transaction side of the business no more double entry. Take all the stress out of your business and go get Sisu. The link's in the description here. Hope you enjoy the Spencer Raskoff podcast. It's my favorite ever. Unbelievable way to end the BAM launch week. Sitting here with Spencer Raskoff. Needs no introduction. Former CEO of Zillow. Uh, 75 and Sunny is your investment company, as well as obviously Picasso, which is the un fastest unicorn status company of all time. Did I say that right? Is that the you, you did. All yes. Right. So that we want to get all into that. Great. Um, before, you know, you've done so much, I, and it's impossible to even start running through all of the companies that you've had an influence on. But the biggest influence you have is just the kingpin of residential real estate. I mean, you are the <laughs> matchmaker. If anybody wants to pitch a deal, they're trying to get on your calendar. Right? Am I, I right? Have a, I have a lot of prop tech deals. Yes. Yeah. Because okay. of my Zillow experience and now my Picasso experience, I, I tend to see a lot of deals in prop tech. And you know, last year, 75 and Sunny did about 100, sorry, we have about 100 companies in our portfolio. We did about 50 new deals last year, and about a quarter of them are in prop tech. Yeah. I mean, this is unbelievable for us. Like be, being able to sit here with you and make the time, super grateful. <laughs> Thank super you for having me. I'm excited, excited to talk to you. Yeah. Very thankful. So just real quick, why don't you give us the background of you getting to that point of being able to have the influence sure. you have in the industry? Sure. So I started my career. Well, actually, I should back up. My mom was a real estate agent. Yeah. So I grew up in and around real estate. We used to go to open houses for fun as a kid. Um, I still drag my kids to open houses for fun. Um, I'm not sure they think it's as much fun as, as sure I do, don't. but that's okay. Um, anyway, so grew, kind of grew up in and around real estate. Um, and then my first job out of college was investment banking at Goldman Sachs. So um, not really tech focused, but bank, but investment banking, mergers and acquisitions. Didn't really like it. Moved to San Francisco, worked at a private equity firm called TPG. And then I did my first startup in 1999. It was a company called Hotwire, which is an early online travel company. We sold Hotwire to Expedia in 2003. And then I moved up to Seattle. I worked at Expedia for a year or two, and then I left Expedia to start Zillow. I started, uh, we started Zillow in 2006. Uh, I was the CEO that took it public in 2011. We did 17 acquisitions while I was CEO and it became a very big company, a couple thousand employees, um, tens of tens of billions of market cap. And then about three years ago, I retired as CEO of Zillow. I moved back to LA where I grew up. I started 75 and Sunny and I've been actively angel investing and starting new companies, including Picasso for the last three years. Yeah, definitely want to dive into Picasso, but we got to, we got to start with Zillow. Great. And you know, there's a lot of agents that are tuning. You don't do a lot of these, by the way, a lot of interviews. I mean, I, I see on CNBC, you've got your own podcast, <laughs> you, .la, you should check out Spencer's podcast. It's unbelievable. Um, but I don't, I don't see you do a lot of these no, where I you don't. reflect on the, on the Zillow years. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be proud of. It was yeah. an amazing and exhausting 13-year uh, run, I think, something like that. 
And I'm incredibly proud of, first of all, the team that we built, uh, the corporate culture that we created. It was a really special place to work. And we had very, very high levels of employee engagement. And I'll, I'm always, I mean, that to me is the most, the thing I'm most proud of was was the culture and, and the people that I recruited and the team uh, and the culture that we created. So that's number one. Um, number two, I'm proud of the innovations that we brought to the industry, sometimes loudly and over objections. Um, but uh, I think the world is a better place. I think that that the U.S. real estate consumer and professional are now smarter. They're more informed. The information asymmetry between the real estate professional and the consumer has been remedied. So consumers are more empowered than ever before. And I'm very proud of that as well. A hundred percent. I will admit, I was one of the agents early in my sales career. You know, I started in 2012, but I would say all the way probably until meeting you, you, you don't remember this, but I met you in 2015, I believe it was an Inman. Uh, you guys do, mm -hmm. used to do the after parties at the NASDAQ. And in the beginning I had no money. So I was literally, you know, just doing deals, however I could get them, you know, calls and letters and door knocking and all these kind of things. And I wasn't happy. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I wasn't buying Zillow leads. And I and I think that a lot of agents that were undereducated on what Zillow is doing, like I was, uh, would would oh Zillow's trying to destroy the agent, all these kind of things. You dealt with so much of that. You explained it to me. You articulated it beautifully to me in the NASDAQ building in 2015 when I got to shake your hand and meet you. And I'm thankful for that because I started to see it through the lens of the consumer as opposed to the lens of the agent and the realtor. Yeah. You changed the game and gave the consumers what they didn't have, which was access. But how did you stay you know, in that lane of being able to compete with all these agents that you were, not compete with them, yeah. but, but really you know, stay in your lane of what you were building while you were working with these agents at the same time? Well, uh, a, a lot of real estate agents make a lot of money through Zillow. I mean, that's what sort of yeah. people forget when they talk about opposition that Zillow has faced or is facing or will face in the industry is at the end of the day, agents spend about a billion dollars a year with Zillow. So they don't all hate it. Clearly, they're voting with their wallet and they give more money. They're buying more media and getting more software from Zillow than any other company by far in the real estate industry. So clearly a lot of people get a lot of, a lot of professionals get a lot of value from it or else they wouldn't, they wouldn't work with them the way they do. Right. Um, but, um, you know, but that having been said, it, as a, it, it has, it has leveled the playing field in terms of information. And there is a type of real estate professional that, uh, remembers that, that is nostalgic about a time when only they had access to the information. Only they, oh, still uh, you know, today, which is surprising. Uh, yeah. And like, you know what, those days are over. Get with the program. Like imagine you as a consumer, if you didn't have access to the same information as a doctor, right. that would piss you off, you know, and the yes. internet has given you the same information as a doctor. Now you still need a professional, a doctor to help you interpret all this information. Uh, so it's great that health information is widely distributed because of the internet, but there's still a role for the practitioner. Real estate's the same way. You know, there's tons of real estate information out there on Zillow and elsewhere, and that's great, but there's still an important role for the practitioner to help you interpret it and to help you with the transaction. And once you start thinking about it that way as, as a real estate practitioner, real estate professional, I think you start to better understand how you still have a role and how you fit into the ecosystem, but that doesn't take anything away from the important role that Zillow plays. Yeah, and, you, and when you start to learn that, you don't come from a place of fear. Obviously, that maybe first third of the transaction, given access to consumers, was an overwhelming good thing for consumers and for the industry. The middle part of the transaction, which is you know transaction management, these kind of things, you, know, you get... Mm -hmm. When when you were at Zillow, you bought Dot Loop, or was it after? It was during your no, time. No, that was yeah. that was me. Yeah. So you purchased Dot Loop. That would be in that middle of the transaction, mm -hmm. putting putting the deal together. Has that? Do you think that part's been solved? Are we still working oh, gosh, on the no. middle? Obviously, gosh, the no. end of the transaction, we can get the title and those kind of things are are still a complete uh, no. mess. I mean, there's still, and this is the focus of a lot of my personal investing through 75 and sunny there for a category as big as real estate with almost 2 trillion of transaction volume a year, just on the resi side, a hundred billion of commissions a year. I mean, there's still, it is still really antiquated and um, transaction management is still a mess. Lead conversion and CRM is still a mess. As you point out at the very bottom of the funnel, all the attached services are have, still haven't been digitized. So it, you know, buying and selling a home still looks mostly like it looked 15 years ago when we started Zillow. 
except for iBuying, when you sell your home to an iBuyer, that looks and feels a little bit different than selling your home traditionally. But most, uh, iBuying only has 1% market share. So 99% of the time that you sell your home, it's basically like it was 15 years ago when Zillow started. You're a little less clueless as a consumer. You have a sense, for example, of, of what might my home sell for, which you didn't have 15 years ago. So that's good, but it's still, you know, it still hasn't changed that much. So we got a lot of work to do as an industry. And for the agent side too, there's a lot of work. If you're a Zillow Flex team right now, you probably have another CRM for the team for your Google PPC or whatever else you're running in, you know, in, as leads for the team. And maybe you're working on, you know, any number of the different CRMs. And a lot of them do connect with, with the Zillow CRM. Yeah. But then if you're also on, you know, Realtor VIP or something, you, that you've got to update that app. And so some of these big mega teams now have like VAs where it's like you personally update this app, this app, instead of having the agent go and log into you know, four different CRMs on top of all the other logins. Is that an area that can be solved for real estate agents where they aren't logging into 15 to 25 different platforms? Maybe. I mean, that... The, uh, is that just the world we live well, in? Well, yeah. So it's sort of the world we live in. I mean, Okta is a huge public company now, OKTA, and um, many companies, including Zillow, employs use Okta to log into all their stuff. So if you, you know, real estate agents tend to work for themselves, but if you work at a big company like a Picasso or a Zillow, um, you know, you'll use Okta and you'll have the login to your payroll thing and the login to your healthcare thing and the login to your, you know, employee benefits thing. And I mean, at Zillow, their employees at Zillow probably have 50 logins at Okta to different services that they use. So um, I, I, to some extent, I, I think that's kind of the way of the world, just like as a consumer now, you've got so many different services that you touch, but these things will be stitched together a little bit better. There's certainly ample opportunity for um, a CRM, for example, to connect to a digital appraisal service like a loft where I'm an investor or a digital mortgage origination service like Tomo where I'm an investor. Your CRM, your real estate CRM, regardless of what you choose, should integrate better with, with each of those things. And it should also integrate better up funnel with lead sources like realtor.com or Zillow. And so there's there's definitely still piping to be built in the real estate industry that improves the connectivity of the software suite. On both sides, we talked about it with the mm -hmm. consumers and the, what they're dealing with the transaction and also on the agent side, that last half or that last maybe third, I guess, of the transaction where it's the appraisals and the title. And there's a whole bunch of believers that, you know, this will just, the blockchain can just solve all of that. Are we a long way away from, if we're not having solved the middle entirely, are we a long way away from solving the end of the transaction? Um, this which, which if we haven't solved, it means agents, guess what? There's a lot of need for real estate professionals. Well, even once title is digitized and, and on the blockchain somehow, I, 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 I don't think that will take away anything from real estate professionals. That'll be like... Um, you know, it's like if you're a, a, a doctor, like a radiologist, and now there's an x-ray machine. It's like, I mean, well, that's great. That makes my job much easier. And it yeah. allows me to focus my work, my time and effort on higher value things. Like even if even if an AI can read an x-ray, for example, and tell me as the radiologist what it says, that too would be really valuable because then I'm able to spend more time um showing empathy and counseling my client, my patient or my real estate client on what it all means. Um, but um, I mean, I, t just this morning I had probably what is, was probably my 25th pitch um, uh, of a startup that's trying to do some form of digitizing or, or putting on the blockchain title. Uh, so there are a lot of entrepreneurs trying to figure this out. Mm. I'm generally pretty skeptical that it can be pulled off on a, on a reasonable time frame because you'll need county adoption because there's huge regulatory challenges to overcome. I think it's a, a it's a 20 year slog to really put a, do something interesting on title on the blockchain. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but, but I think it's gonna take a long time. And if you live in small town America, that makes a lot of sense to you. If you know your town hall or your county hall yeah. and how they operate. So that's a, a long way away. What's the big problem that Zillow is going to solve over the over the short term. Right now, what is Zillow going to solve? Well, so in your so 
firstly, on the title point, it's interesting that there are a couple countries that are trying to pave the way. Okay. Uh, well, because like I think El Salvador yeah, and Latvia, yeah. Estonia, yeah. a couple other a couple countries that have centralized national title programs, they're trying to, you know, I think that's where we'll start seeing it working first before we start seeing it in the US because we have such a decentralized system. Um, Problem Zillow solving. Well, I should preface this by saying I'm not affiliated with Zillow anymore at Correct. all. Correct. <laughs> so um, I'm a shareholder of Zillow. This will um, be more of a prediction. Yeah. For okay. you. We, we, won't, we won't hold you to it. But so I mean, Zillow in in a in the post i buying um, era of Zillow, which we're just now entering, um, they're focused on maximizing lead conversion and driving take rate from the leads that they connect with real estate professionals. So th- those are like. Priority is number one and number two. And then priority number three is driving more attached services from mortgage and title and escrow from, uh, you know, attached to the leads that they send to premier agents. So those are the priorities for Zillow. Um, and, um, you know, they, it's, um, uh, they're right-sizing the company and, and reducing the size of the company now that they've exited iBuying to a much smaller footprint in yeah. terms of employees to go after those priorities. Spencer Raskoff, former CEO of Zillow, if you were the current CEO of Zillow, would you start buying brokerages in the next 10 years? No, I wouldn't. Um, I don't think they need to. <laughs> um, they don't need to buy brokerages. They oh. they already are, you know, they already... They already have a bigger margin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. they're a virtual brokerage yeah. with Premier Agent, and they get to cream skim the their their split, if you will. Um, they don't call it that, but it's basically what it is without actually operating a brokerage. Um, so, uh, for the same reason that Google isn't likely to. Um, you know, start operating hotels or, or Expedia is not likely. Or buy all the plumbing companies in the country. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. You know, Google doesn't need to operate their own plumbers. They instead have all the plumbers compete and buy leads from Google and they With the Google, cream skin. Google Local Services is, is kind of a direct competitor in the real estate to Zillow yeah, Premier Agent. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the reason that um, Zillow is um, somewhat protected vis-a-vis Google is because they have built plumbing around lead conversion. Uh, And they are the, when people say, I'm looking at a house, I'm going to Zillow it. Like I'm going to, if I'm going to research something, I'm going to Google it. They They have have more top of funnel traffic, which protects their, you know, they're not as dependent on Google for traffic as say, um, the beginning. Angie's list is, you know, dependent on Google for home services. Uh, traffic. Um, but, um, you know, Google drives traffic to an agent's website, which generally converts a visitor to a lead very poorly. Zillow generates a lead that goes into a, a, an app for the agent and also integrates with the CRM. So that lead should convert at a higher rate. So Google has a much, sorry, Zillow has a much better value proposition to an advertising real estate agent than Google does. And if you look at other categories, for example, it's, it's not a, quite as clear cut you know, Google's value prop to an advertiser in, uh, you know, some other verticals outside of real estate um, is, is pretty like, like, like doctors, for example, you know, if you're, uh, or a lawyer, if you're a lawyer and you want to grow your business, you can buy traffic from Google to your website and generate new business. There's no Zillow of, uh, of, of medicine or of, of healthcare or of lawyers that generates not just a lead, but actually a lead that can be converted and goes into a CRM. So Zillow's pretty protected vis-a-vis Google. I agree that most of the teams, websites, even small brokerages, they're certainly not converting like the Zillow app, which is now going to be the super app. I don't know if that's the same app or different. I don't know what that really means. But, but <laughs> the, the Zillow app obviously converts at a higher level yeah. than an agent's website. Yeah. So take your $100 million team. Should they still have their own website? Yes, they should. Okay. And I have an investor. I am an investor in one. <laughs> so I'm an investor and advisor to Luxury Presence, which does high-end real estate agent websites. Um, and real estate agents absolutely should have their own website as well. They need to own and control their own digital presence, their own digital brand. It's how most consumers, uh, even if they find you on Zillow, they're going to then go Google you and end up on sure. your website. Um, but most con- most clients aren't even going to find you on Zillow. They're mostly going to find you through word of mouth, sphere of influence from yard signs. Or meeting you through the Zillow connection. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So either way, you absolutely need a great website. 
luxury presence has what I view as great websites for agents and also a referral network for other agents that are members of luxury presence. So, yeah. All right. Last Zillow question. It's the broke agent media launch week and the creator of the broke agent, Eric, yeah, he's outside. So I've got to ask you this. When he was posting any Zestimate jokes on the broke agent Instagram or any similar jokes like that, that were out there. Did anybody like run into your office when you were the CEO? Like Spencer, you, you got to see this. Should we like a, we blast this guy off a of planet Earth here? Has anything ever been brought to you that was controversial or just in a joking manner? Yeah, I mean, lots of things. And, and I think one of the magical things about Zillow and the brand, the reason that it is Zillow and not Realtor.com or one of the many reasons is that we leaned into that frivolity, that voyeurism in the brand that you know we we didn't run away from real estate porn like it would be very easy yeah. for a company to say like oh we can't have the word porn you know associated with our brand uh, but far from shutting down others when they described it that way we stoked the you know we stoked that flame and i think that was very very clever so um that SNL skit that well, I was just going to bring Zilla, up the SNL yeah. skit. I mean, was, that, was that planned? No, it wasn't. No, so that was a so, that was a total. <laughs> so to be clear, plan. I wasn't I wasn't uh, there, at yeah. Zillow anymore when yeah. it came out. But it was it was a total surprise to Zillow. Zillow didn't even know about it, and uh, they certainly didn't pay for it. But even though it was totally organic and a surprise, it didn't surprise me at all. And it was 15 years in the making. Um, and it was what so I, true. Yeah, and I mean, Everybody it was 15 years it. in the making because we did so many things, big and small, to feed into that meme. Um, and and support it. And you see this all over, you know, on TikTok now, for example, there are organic accounts not controlled by Zillow that are people that are like making fun of Zillow listings or or doing, you know, spooky, you know, uh, ghost houses of Zillow or, or other, you know, making fun of property descriptions or weird photos. Like the fact that that's happening out there in the world, these are the, think about that for a second. These are the same listings. They're in IDX, right? So they could, you could have a meme account yeah. on Instagram of on, you know, homes.com, but nobody does that. No. Right. They do it on Zillow. It's the yeah. same photo. They don't even do it on realtor.com. Right. So, so like, why, why is that? And it's, it's, again, it's not an accident. It's many years of things that you didn't even really see um, of, of us at Zillow and the incredible marketing team, um, you know, when I was there of, of laying the groundwork for that. Well, two out of three people just go to that app over any other app. That's including all the brokerages, real, you know, all the other big competitors. It's because of that brand. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a stronghold on it. For so sure. For sure. No regrets at Zillow. None. 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 All right. Good. <laughs> Let's go over to Picasso. Okay. <laughs> because I mean, the fastest company in the world? Would that be the world? So Planet far, Earth? I mean, uh, yes. So we were the fastest company to reach unicorn status. Um, uh, our Series B was at about a, a billion dollar plus valuation. Um, I'm kind of blushing because it's a weird thing to... We, we went back and forth on whether we should have even announced it at the time because it is a little arrogant almost, but it was true and we verified it. It's so. a GOAT record. It's all-time <laughs> GOAT status. Yeah. The fastest, the first ever, you know, to, to yeah. do that. I mean, it's 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 a testament to the strength of the team and also the idea and the timing, right? I mean, so Picasso lets you buy a portion of a second home and the insight here that my co-founder, Austin Allison. Dot Loop, right? Yeah. I mean, Austin, um, Austin was the founder of Dot Loop, which is real estate transaction management software. And um, I stalked as a, the CEO of Zillow. I stalked him for probably five years trying to get him to sell it to us. And, you know, every conference. What every, does that look like? Um, I've done that a lot or I did that a lot at Zillow. So what it looks like was, um, you know, I'd call him every month or two and I literally had a calendar reminder. You'd follow up. Yeah. A, a calendar reminder that, you know, Street Easy is the classic example of this okay. where I called Michael Smith, the founder of Street Easy. I think every month for two years and said, give you know, us the script. Are you ready to sell? Are you ready to sell? Hey, Michael, it's Spencer here from Zillow. Hope you're doing great. How you been? How's biz? You know, is now the right time. Um, and, you know, and then eventually. Just going for the kill every it, other month. Uh, I don't think of this. A kill, going for the, the, the hug, <laughs> the hug, you know. <laughs> um, and if, and uh, one time the answer was yes, you know, and, and yeah. Matt Corgan and, and Doug Pope at Hot Pad, same thing. I'd call them. You know, I always wanted to own the HotPads brand as a separate standalone rentals website. We always wanted to own StreetEasy. We always wanted to own DotLoop and transaction management. And Pete Flint at Trulia, Pete and I had that same conversation probably, you know, at least once a quarter for five years before it was the right time for us to merge. Um, so anyway, so so I stalked DotLoop for many, many years. Zillow acquired it. Austin and about 200 employees came from over from DotLoop over to Zillow. He stayed for four years. 
uh, at Zillow. So he was a senior executive at, at Zillow. We worked very closely together. He ran a lot of our real estate uh, software businesses. So um, the the real estate productivity software that we sold or gave to real estate agents, that was all Austin um, at Zillow. And so he was there for four years. When we both left about three years ago, we left at the same time. And we immediately, like that week, started working on business ideas together because I thought he was such a talented founder. I saw what he created at Loop, and I really wanted to work with him again. And so we started like any good startup brainstorming exercise. You start by talking about each other and yourselves. And I mean, we were literally Did you guys like, like go away somewhere for this. Or? This was, it was weirdly. It was mostly by phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just go for a walk on the beach, uh, with my cell phone and he was up in Napa Valley on his cell phone. And we would just spend hours. Um, we did do some things in person, but we knew each other well enough that it was mostly just by phone, not even on zoom. And it's like a get to know you conversation of like, you know, tell me about your life. Like what's important to you? What do you like? What problems do you see around you? And I think those that's the best way to ideate around a business plan. Even the way Zillow started was the same thing. The co-founders were um, all together in a room trying to think of startup ideas. And we were buying houses at around the same time. Yeah. And we're using all these websites. And we're like, these websites stink. King County's website, which is where Seattle is, King County's website is pretty good, actually. What if there were some of this county data like publicly available? And the MLS has lots of great data. What if there was like a, a mashup of county um, you know, MLS data and then evaluation on every home on every rooftop. And that's kind of, that's how we created Zillow out of personal need. Anyway. So, so Austin and I were, by the way, I heard Rich tell the story of how you guys came up with the name Zillow. That's a whole fascinating story, <laughs> story too. Zillions of pillows or what did he say? Well, he's, <laughs> he was going with all these, he threw, wrote all these words, maybe it was fabricated or whatever, but all these words were on the board and you're taking all these words and you had to have a Z in it and yeah, all, all these. True. All these different. All true. Uh, I'm actually teaching a, a. I teach a class at Harvard called Startups from Idea to Exit, and my class next week is on naming, and so it's exactly about this topic. How do yeah. you name a startup? Um, but um, so Austin and I, uh, we both loved second homes. I was fortunate enough to to have a second home. He um, was is fortunate enough to have a second home, and it they changed our lives. Like the the when you have a second home you can be a better version of yourself. You're a better parent. You're a better friend. You're a better kid there. And you don't only have a second home, you really have a second life, a second set of rituals, a place where your kids like to go to breakfast, a hike that you go on, um, you know, friends and and neighbors that you make in that second community. And yet it's really inaccessible to most people. Like most people can't afford a second home. Many can hardly afford a first home. And so the reason for that is because it's very expensive to own a second home because of underutilization. Yeah. And most second homes are only used six weeks a year. Why is six weeks relevant? Well, that's one eighth of of a home. And so we hit upon the idea of co-ownership, which is what Picasso allows you to do. It allows you to co-own your home. You can buy a home in eighths, one eighths, two eighths, three eighths of the home, and then you co-own it with other people. Anyway, so that's how Austin and I came up with the the idea and to where we started the conversation about uh, unicorn status. It's an idea that really has perfect product market fit because in a, a, a world where you don't need to be tethered to your office anymore. Mm-hmm. People have, um, many people, especially knowledge workers, have more ability to use a second home, home than ever before. And so that's increased interest in second home ownership, which has worked really, which has benefited Picasso greatly. Do you feel like you're back at the beginning stages of building Zillow where you're getting resistance around this new way of home ownership in Picasso? Yes. Um, and uh, yes. Um, you know, it's similar to Hotwire, my first startup when, you know, the tagline for Hotwire was a four-star hotel at a two-star price. And Hotwire created with Priceline this new category of travel purchasing where you got a great discount, but you didn't know particulars about the travel product. You didn't know the airline until you bought the ticket. You didn't know the name of the hotel um, until you bought the hotel room. You didn't know the, um, the the departure time on the airline ticket. And so we were creating a new category of travel that was much cheaper and therefore more accessible to more people, but had some restrictions. That's pretty similar to what we're doing at Picasso, right? We're, we're taking, we're creating a new category of home ownership that has some restrictions. You can't use the house whenever you want because you only own an eighth of it. Um, but it's much more financially accessible to people. There was absolutely resistance at Hotwire. There was resistance at Zillow. There is some resistance at Picasso. Um, and, and does, so that, does that make you believe this is the right thing to do? Yeah, that it, resistance it, it does. Validates? It, it, it does. Absolutely. I mean, that, you know, the, no, almost no great innovation has, you know, has um, not had resistance. I mean, every great innovation has had resistance of, of some kind or another. Um, the resistance, the, the resistance in the case of Picasso is, is a little bit strange to me because 
I firmly believe that Picasso is good for communities, that the problem is empty second homes. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, if you live in one of these communities, the problem is that the restaurants are empty on Wednesdays and that, you know, they're, they're all these second homes sit vacant. And so the money is not coming into the community and it does drive up house prices when out of towners buy these second homes. Yeah. What Picasso does is it's like carpooling, like carpooling combines people into a single car and that reduces congestion on the freeway. Picasso carpools people into a single home that's higher end. And so it alleviates um, uh, demand in the mid tier by aggregating eight people into the upper price tier. And then those homes are utilized. And so local services and restaurants and bars and wineries and ski mountains and you know other services are used because the homes are highly utilized as compared with sitting empty. So we think it's patently good for the community. Now, we have a little work to do to articulate that position and to convince some resistors, but um, but but I think it's I think it's good for these these areas. Well, I look at I have a second home in Connecticut, and in the winter, it's a ghost town. Right. And I was just up right. there for a couple of days and the restaurants. Right. I went to my favorite restaurant and I'm like, man, you, you guys would be open till 1030 if this was the summer yeah. when everybody's here. So who does but that like help? I mean, your house is empty. It's not good for anybody. And, and yeah. um, you know, you should turn your home into a Picasso, which yeah. which we do do. It's called a sell down. And, you know, you would contact Picasso and we would check out your house. And then if we thought it would make a good Picasso and we had demand, uh, you know, we don't we haven't actually launched in Connecticut yet, but we've done this a lot in Tahoe and Napa and Malibu and other markets. So you're launching market by market. Um, yeah, we're in 35 markets around the world yeah. right now. We're in the US, the UK, and Spain, and in 35 cities. And is there a certain price point? I think it was four to eight million is what I was reading. Yeah, the, the typical price point is at least two times the median home value. Yeah. So um, our, our typical homes, whole home value is around four to eight million. So you divide that by eight to get your unit value. So 500,000 to a million dollars is what most people are paying for their Picasso or one eighth of the home. Wow. Now, over time, we'll move into um, more uh, kind of more approachable price points in in more approachable markets. Like the vision for Picasso is to be yeah. in your town in Connecticut. It's to be on a lake in Ohio and in in Texas and uh, and going all the way to the median price point. Uh, probably not down. We will still be luxury. Or... We'll be luxury okay. in those markets, but um, and luxury is divine. Divine, defined differently in every market. Of course. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, but, but it typically like two times the median home value at a minimum. Four to eight million. How many homes do you guys oh, have right now? It's Picasso. Hundreds, hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands by the time this airs. Yeah. <laughs> every day, some more. Yes. <laughs> some issues happening in uh, St. Helena, Napa area, and, and just resistance um, that is very specific to laws that they're trying to enforce in the town. Do you want to touch on that? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a moving target, so it's hard to, it's hard to comment too, too specifically. I'd say, um, you know, there are one or two communities, we're in 35 markets and there are one or two where we've had pushback and that pushback, um, you know, in the case that you're talking about, there's been a, a local ordinance passed, which we think is unconstitutional because it's a constitutional right to be able to buy real estate in an LLC with other people and the government shouldn't be able to regulate. They shouldn't be able to tell me that I can't buy a home with you uh, any more or less than, you know, that I buy a home that I, uh, with somebody from Picasso. And it's also a very slippery slope on property rights because um, many of these communities have long histories of redlining and of trying to keep out people that don't look like them. And, um, uh, and it, you know, Newsweek can tell you about that. Yeah. It, it's, Island. I mean, it's it, exactly, it gets, um, it gets, uh, it gets pretty hairy because, um, again, a lot, a, some of some of this pushback is motivated by a outsider bias, like a, a feeling that you know our community looks in a particular way. Wink, wink. I think we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. We don't want other folks to to come in and, and buy here. And the law specifically, there, and you guys can read about it, but you know they're banning um, timeshares. And you talk about the timeshare. Yeah, we're not a timeshare. It's not a timeshare. We're not a timeshare. We're co-ownership in an LLC. Real ownership. Yeah, real ownership. And this is the irony, of course, is in a lot of these communities, around half of all the homes are owned in an LLC, a multi-member LLC. Of course. And it could be parent-child. It could be you know two spouses. It could be two friends. So this is we we did not invent this. Picasso did not invent the category of co-ownership. 
And it certainly didn't invent the category of owning real estate in an LLC. Those two things are very you know, widely distributed. Um, we're, uh, we're a process to do those, those two things. But so I, I think, you know, over the, we take a very long-term point of view. I think over the very long-term, uh, people will understand that this is good for communities and the resistance that we've, we've encountered in just one or two places, I think over time will work itself out. People might think you've invented every real estate company <laughs> no, out there. But I definitely have not. I mean, there, that's one thing I have learned as a, as an investor is there are almost no new ideas. There are really just packaging of, of old ideas, but the, you know, the, I agree the, with that. The, the, the comparable with, or the comp as you would say in real estate with, with Picasso is really Airbnb. So in, in Airbnb, um, Airbnb didn't invent the idea of you know renting out your place yeah. for a short period of time and um, or even your spare room, right? But what Airbnb did was they came along and they solved trust and safety, demand aggregation, payments, scheduling. They they sort of solved all these things that have have unlocked this huge market. What made Picasso, it way more possible? Exactly, made it way more possible. And and what Picasso has done is. Um, we've we've taken something that is a DIY, a do-it-yourself thing. Like people buy, again, families buy a mountain house together or a ski house together, whatever, all the time. But it's very hard to do that. It usually ends friendships when you do it yourself. Yeah. Why? Because scheduling is very difficult. Demand aggregation is very difficult. How do you get to enough people that want 100% of the home? Um, governance is very difficult. How do you decide how the home gets furnished or what CapEx goes in? Bill pay is difficult. And mortgage finance is impossible. You can't you know, call Rocket Mortgage and say, hey, I want a mortgage on a, a quarter of a home. They won't originate it. But yeah. you can get a mortgage through Picasso. And then finally, liquidity is impossible. If you buy a home with three friends, good luck getting out. What happens if right. you want to sell? You know, you can't list that, right? Eight owners, just the emails going around about the electric bill right. would drive me insane. So all, this is what Picasso solves, right? So yeah. you do the scheduling to visit your home through the Picasso app. We do all the governance. We do all the property management. We do the demand aggregation to get to 100%. We do the mortgage finance and we do the resale. So when you want to sell your home, you just list it through Picasso. The other owners have right of first refusal and then it gets listed in the MLS. It appears on regular IDX websites. And so we have liquidity. So it's very different from a timeshare, which is multifamily, not single family. There's no liquidity. Um, it's a- it's They go a, out of business, you lose it. Exactly. You don't really own real property. With, with timeshare, you basically own the right to stay at a hotel at a discounted, or really the obligation to stay at the hotel at a discounted price. <laughs> okay, yeah. um, in the case of Picasso, it's an asset, not a liability. You actually own a real, the LLC interest in that real property. Yeah. Now it's brilliant. It's why it's a unicorn. So, so congrats. I love what you said that there's no real new ideas. The, these great entrepreneurs are packaging, you know, an idea or making it a lot better or more accessible or whatever. What are the great entrepreneurs going? How can you be a great entrepreneur even in the real estate space over the next five, 10 years? Solve a problem, um, you know, find a problem in your life and try to solve it. And, you know, the difference between a, a tinkerer and a great entrepreneur is somebody who finds a big problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Because one of the most common things that I find as an angel investor who has seen my team and I see about 500 pitches a year. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of a lot of reps. You personally look at them. All? I personally see about 250 a year. Um, it's like one a day. Yeah, it feels like take five the, a day. Take the weekends out, it's I mean, one a day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. So we yeah. see a lot of pitches. Um, a lot of them are um, features, not companies. A lot okay. of them are solving some small problem. If you're an entrepreneur, how do you know the difference between a feature and a company? It's probably gut, I guess. But um, it, well, a, a good a good rule of thumb is to try to back into, um, you know, is there a path to 25 to 100 million of revenue? So most software companies- 25 to 100. Yeah, because- if you can't get there, forget about it. It's a hobby. Or it's a feature, it can be bootstrapped, but it's not venture fundable. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of good ideas that um, you know are, are you should pursue. Just don't expect to raise money for them. You have to, you know, it's so like, um, you know, I was pitched the other day um, an offer platform, like software for real estate agents to, um, you know, listing you agents. all the to, real estate deals. Yeah, I do, I do see a lot of the real estate, yeah. So, so, you know, it's a good idea. It's like, hey, if I'm in a hot market, how do I manage multiple offers that okay. come in at the same time? And, you know, how do I create like an auction type, you know, experience, user interface, um, and give transparency to the listing agent, the buyer's agents, their clients, et cetera. Um, I don't think that's venture fundable because if you, um, if, if, you have to separate out the total addressable market from the serviceable addressable market. So what's the serviceable addressable market of that idea? Well, it's probably pretty high-end listing agents in really hot markets 
what's a reasonable market penetration? Well, maybe I can get 10% of them, 25% of them to use it. What would they likely pay for it? When you do all that math, you end up with, this is probably a 10 or $20 million revenue business. The reason that it's important to get to that level is maybe these things will trade at five to 10 times that. So let's say it's 10 million of revenue. That means it's going to be 50 to $100 million total value. VCs, venture capitalists are never going to invest in anything that where they think the total upside for the company is $100 million in value because they can't get compensated enough for the risk that they're taking to, to move the needle on that type of an exit. So, you know, entrepreneurs listening to this are probably like, $100 million, that'd be amazing. I'd love to create a company worth $100 million. And you should, absolutely. Just you're not going to attract investment capital for it. You're going to have to bootstrap it or do it yourself. Um, uh, you know, broke agent media is perhaps, uh, you know, falls into that category. It's absolutely something you guys are doing well. And we're, you not, know, we're not taking any investors right now. So and good, yeah. you know, because I, I'm not sure how fundable it is as a, as, as a true standalone media company that, you know, with, is it a billion dollar plus opportunity? Maybe, maybe not. What, but, what other products besides sponsors, affiliates, and our own, pro, you know, own products like a course should BAM be looking at to be a bigger valuation company. I mean, I'm pretty bullish on events. Like I have a digital media business called Dot LA, which is a news service that just yeah. covers LA tech. It's sort of like Inman News, but for yeah, LA is, tech. Is Dot LA a feature? Or is it a bit, you know? it's, it's a great question. And, you know, we've raised a couple million dollars of venture capital for it um, from the LA tech community mm -hmm. who wants it to succeed um, out, to, of passion. To, out of passion, to uplift the, the LA tech community. Yeah. Also a little bit financially, like we all hope that we're building something, but it's, it's somewhere, it's a tweener between a feature and a company. Um, and, you know, I'm aiming to, to turn it into a, a company to drive venture type returns, but it's a, it's a small, it's a small opportunity. It's for now, it's just focused on one city. Now you can easily imagine taking it to dot Atlanta, Miami, dot Miami, yeah. dot Boston, et cetera. And then maybe it becomes big enough to, to really drive a you know, multiple hundred million dollars. So events, exit. we should look at events if we want to go big. I think so. In what, in what way? Um, Typical conference or, I mean. I mean, it'd be great if you had a different spin on the yeah, conference. I mean, you know, you, you're all real estate agents, so you know better than I do, like what agents, want. where the white space is. You know, my yeah. guess is that there's plenty of content out there for them to absorb podcasts or, you know, or, or media like this and other, other conferences in person or, or on zoom. So it's probably not content. Maybe it's just networking and, and connectivity with, with their peers. I don't know. What would um, be another way that you, if you were advising a media company? Um, I mean the, the big, the big like divide in, in online media is, is paywall or, or, or no paywall. Right. So dot LA, for example, has no paywall, no paywall on BAM. Um, and the good news of no paywall is it's a bigger addressable market. Yeah. That's why we don't have one at dot LA. The bad news is it's hard to monetize. So you look at like the information it does. It's a pretty good business. Now it's, it's very small number of subscribers, but they pay a lot of money. And so it makes a bunch of money and, and most digital media has mo moved towards paywall. And Substack yeah. has enabled that, which is a, a newsletter subscription platform. Um, but um, but I'm I'm sort of allergic to a paywall as a as a as it depends on your goal, right? I mean, if your goal is to build a small business that's very profitable, you should probably have a paywall. If your goal is to try to have as big an impact as possible and make it broad, then you should try to avoid a paywall. But you're asking for um, for more concrete well, it's, advice. It's easier to monetize, monetize on social than it is with a paywall, if you know how to do social really well. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you say monetize on social, w you mean like uh, have your social footprint do paid paid posts for brands and stuff? Either, either paid posts or, you know, p pushing a product. But a paywall, especially in like the industry that we're talking yeah. about, is a really small target market. Yes, right? yes. I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree that it's difficult to monetize uh, a paywall in a in a niche vertical like like digital real estate. I don't really agree that it's easy. Maybe it's easier, but it's not really easy to monetize on social. It, it's right. not easy. Yeah, yeah. But if you understand, a lot of the companies that have a paywall aren't doing anything on social. Right. So if they didn't have a paywall, they, they would be out of business essentially. Right. Now I agree with with the events. Is there anything? I mean, what you should be else. looking for is like anything, any scalable, basically, again, back to where we were five minutes ago, solve a problem. So what's yeah. a problem? I don't know. 
agents need to generate business and they don't want to just be solely reliant on Zillow for their lead volume or lead generation. Um, another problem, um, agents give up a lot of their commission to their broker and mm -hmm. they want to keep more of their commission. Another problem for a broker is they're trying to demonstrate their value prop to their agent and they're trying to get their agents to use their mortgage. That's yeah, the biggest okay. problem. That, you're right. That's totally. the biggest problem. Totally. That's a huge problem, right? So uh, I, maybe we have two sets of problems on two whiteboards. On the broker side, you've got um, re you know, recruit and retain agents, yeah. drive attached revenue. On the agent side, it's I don't, because of RESPA, I can't monetize my my mortgage business at all. Get That's out of it. a problem. Um, and then, um, uh, I, anyway, I, I would I would sort of map these different problems that different participants have. You might even do have a whiteboard on MLSs. Like, what are their problems? You might have a, one on NAR. What what is it, what are its problems? You might have one on, um, you know, the real estate technology companies other than Zillow. Like, what are what are their problems? And and then. And then you'd sort of map on top of that. What are you passionate about? Like, cause like you're the one thing I've learned is that there's no such thing as a great founder just in and of itself. There's only a great founder for a particular idea. Mm -hmm. Like Austin Allison is a great founder for Picasso. But if I told him to go, you know, Hey, go do this other startup thing, even within real estate, even if it was like, go start a real estate agent CRM. He wouldn't be the right founder for that. He's just not passionate about that. He wouldn't be great at that. He wouldn't be the best in the world at it. He's the best in the world to pursue the current Picasso mission. So, so like once you've got all these problems, then map like, well, which of these problems are you passionate about solving? When you're going through that whiteboard process, I can visualize it in my head one way, but how do you actually do it? You're writing all these problems. You're listing them out on the five, six, whatever yeah. categories. Then what? Um, then you want to size them. So, um, you know, like, uh, let's say the MLS whiteboard is a problem that MLSs have is, um, uh, you know, I don't know, like, um, uh, keeping their members happy. It's like, okay, well let's, but let's size that problem. Well, how many MLSs are there? Like, how, like basically how, which, which of these problems deserve a circle around them based on size and then which of them, you know, a green circle and which of them deserve a black circle based on your passion for the problem. And then which okay. ones have you know, two circles around them. And then um, focus on how many? Uh, five to 10 and then get, you know, try to ideate and get them a little further down the road and eventually get to one. Yeah. What about NAR? Is, uh, is that a problem? And outside of the lobbying they do, is there great value for brokerages I, and agents? Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't actually thought very much about that question. So I'm, this is kind of real time. Um, uh, you know, NARS are a very successful trade association. They the have big, a, the largest, you know, the, I think the first or second largest budget overall, bigger than yeah. the NRA, like, you know, bigger than AARP. Um, and they're pretty darn good at what they do, which is they collect dues from their members and they turn around and they give, good give those dues for influence to advance the industry. And, you know, the industry has a lot to thank NAR for everything from the mortgage interest deduction to, I don't know, the creation of, or the, the cultivation of the MLSs or, or whatever. Like they Even do. investors that, you know, 1031 was floating around yeah. going away and they step in and, and they help right. out with that. That's yeah. right. Um, so, so, but they've got their own list of problems. You know, I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I would guess it's demonstrating value to their members. Um, number two is probably maintaining the power of the brand realtor, which, mm -hmm. you know, every day becomes a little bit more generic, you know, yeah. genericized, you know, most consumers have no idea what a realtor is and why it's different from a real estate agent, from a real estate Great. broker. Um, so I think that's a pretty big problem for, for NAR. Um, another problem is just its own like bowl of spaghetti governance where it's like, there's the national and the local and the regional, ah, it's like all kind of convoluted and, and complex. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, those are some problems that I think NAR probably faces. I, I would, I would guess. But I, I don't. I haven't ever really dug in there deeply. You know, did you have any communication with Nara? Yeah, when you yeah, were CEO? yeah. I mean, it was mostly um, when I was CEO of Zillow. Um, we communicated a lot, and I built friendship. I mean, Todd Carpenter, that's at Second Century Ventures, is I think terrific, and he's you know he, I consider him a pretty good friend. Um, and I would talk to to Dale Stinton and kind of the leadership pretty regularly. Did they ever ask you, Spencer, slow down or or change course? Less than you'd think. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I can't speak to what it's like today, but I felt like I had a pretty constructive relationship with NAR, even though we didn't agree on a lot of things. You know, there were okay. plenty of times where where we disagreed. I always took the strategy when I was at Zillow of maximum engagement. You know, it's like if somebody's out there on social media saying, you know, talking smack about Zillow or about me, 
engage, like, you know, go meet people where they're at, attend the conferences, yeah. go, you know, go meet people at the NAR offices in Chicago. Like I, that was my, my attitude. It took a lot of time and effort and I, it, you know, it, it, it took a lot out of me like physically and, and, you know, mentally, but I think that's the right strategy. That's the strategy we're, we're choosing at Picasso as well as one of, of engagement with, with any opposition. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so we talked with NAR a lot, even though it wasn't always, we weren't always on the same side of the table as things. So wrap this up and again, just really appreciate it. Such, such a big impact you've made on this industry. If you're a real estate professional, a mortgage professional who's just maybe not paying attention to all these moving parts, but you're trying to figure it out and be better. What's your advice to them to be really relevant over the next five years? I think that the immutable thing is this is the the democratization of access to information and the consumerization of of everything so meaning that you, you can't hold back this this tide this like the dam has burst of of access to information for consumers and um basically don't bet against the consumer you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube you can't like go back to some other era um, if it's better for the consumer for, you know, for X to X startup to win or for Y regulation to pass or for Z innovation to occur, it will occur. Like the, the consumer has won relative to every, all other interests, the government, the real estate professional, the trade association, whatever it, consumer first, that's the, you know, that's, that's what's going to win. How much information winning. does the average consumer want on, you know, agents are so wrapped up in real estate, but how much does the average homeowner want to know about their home? I mean, it depends. I think, um, I mean, Zillow's traffic would have you believe that, that people care a lot about home values and there, that there are a lot of nosy neighbors out there. Yeah. Um, you know, what's never worked and I've seen a million pitches on this is the the folder you know kind of digitizing the folder when you buy a house and the, the seller gives you the, the manila folder with like this is all the warranties and all the like you know the, this is how the side gate works and this is you know the, the guy that fixed the outdoor lighting one time and all that crap that's in yeah. the folder like there's a lot of business plans around helping the homeowner digitize the folder uh, i haven't so far homeowners have not been interested in that even though yeah. you, you think that it's a, it's a big problem. That should be on the whiteboard. By the way, there should be a whiteboard of problems for consumers as well. I don't think we talked a lot about yeah. professional problems, but yeah. consumer problems should, deserves three whiteboards. Anyway, that's a huge problem. Nobody's really solved it. Consumers haven't seemed interested in, in solving it, even though you'd think they would be. They're more interested in just give me the stuff or I'll figure it out on my own. Yeah, I'll figure. Yeah, this is another another good rubric for thinking about um, startups is, is 10x. Like something has to improve the process be 10x better than the prior thing so of course it would be great for some digital folder for me to track all this stuff around my house but if it's not 10 times better than my status quo i'm not going to bother because people are lazy and busy so the biggest problem with moving is obviously the move itself but all of those different addresses it's like you know you almost don't even want to move because i got you know yeah. 15 things coming into this one address i got to go contact 15 different companies and get all this mail now situated and you still got to go into the old address and you're talking that's to the USPS. That's a problem. Totally. It, it, yeah, it's definitely a problem. Yeah. All right. Well, Spencer, you've got a lot of problems. You're solving a whole bunch <laughs> of them. So we're going to leave it there. Again, really appreciative of you spending the time with us. Thank you very much. It's been great speaking with you. Thank, Thank you. you.